1059, and coming up now is the Radio Geekly. Hi, there we are. <laughs> you are tuned into KBOO Portland, and this is a Radio Geekly. Hello. Hello, it's me, Godiva Lee, and we are talking about women in nerd culture. That's what we're doing today. That's what we're doing. We're two women in nerd culture. Listen to us. We're <laughs> practically experts of our own experiences. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Well, I'm Becky, and Godiva and I have a great episode lined up for you yeah we got a couple of interviews um by Paige Mackler she runs the chapter house pdx and by Trina Robbins a well-known author yeah wonderful so let's get started with a question so this is March it's women's history month um I'd love to chat maybe a little bit about um well a little bit about the history of women in geek culture I mean, we have have to have informed it so much of the way through all of recorded geek culture, I would say, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. What, what do you think the earliest instance of a woman's, like, direct influence would well, be? Well, I know the easiest as far as I'm concerned because I'm a huge Trekkie. Um, yeah. If anybody who's tuned in to any of the previous shows knows, I'm always constantly like listen to the star trek reference but i actually did a whole episode <laughs> i got kudos from the sound man yeah, yeah. that's right Ray. Um, <laughs> but no i did a whole show where i went to star trek las vegas and interviewed a bunch of people um and then one of the famous people that i didn't really get to interview because uh she was one of the first people i saw nichelle nichols i went in i didn't know that um the concession mm -hmm. area was also the autograph area so I'm going around looking at I know right I'm going around <laughs> looking at all this cool stuff to buy and all of a sudden I see like this little fold up table and Nichelle Nichols is just like sitting there hanging out signing <laughs> autographs and I'm like, like I'm literally blown away from the area like mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> like yeah like force fields or whatever yeah man she is one of the first I mean uh, as far as the birth of I know Star Trek came a little later in uh, sci-fi Mm -hmm. and nerd culture uh there was a whole scene with like books and science fiction and stuff but uh definitely star trek was one of the first instances where nichelle nichols made a huge impact mm -hmm. um and i just really appreciate her okay. uh sending the word out to um listening to martin luther king and uh inspiring a black woman to you know enter the uh nasa and mm -hmm. she um, yeah, had this mm -hmm. uh, outreach program for African Americans to enter the program because she saw all of these white dudes going into space, and she's like, "I think there's a lot more room for uh, people of color and for women to go into space too." Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, like that—that—that—that's a, a huge part of our overall development and like the a science fact of going into space and, yeah. and learning about it. 
Um, so I'm I'm taking a look at this. I don't know anything about <laughs> Chapter House. Would you tell us a little more before we get started on that? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Paige Mackler does a really good job of explaining uh, why she started. It's basically a feminist nerd book club. They do some comics. Um, it's mostly sci-fi novels mm-hmm. and it was really comfortable a lot of time when i enter geek culture i feel a little bit drowned out uh i mean by dudes <laughs> sometimes <laughs> they can get a little bit excited you know and it's kind of hard to put your foot in there but as far as uh women's issues go and stuff like that it was really easy to just we met up at the uh coffee house the tea house Mm -hmm. and it was just such a cozy conversation about uh women's authors the uh women characters in the novels Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know we went from uh talking about like philosophy of like what the female author was thinking of when they were putting the female character through this and then like slowly diverging into like what lipsticks we use and like makeup oh tips throughout the group and then going back into you know how the I might have I might have had a moment where I think I was like fantasizing about coffee having <laughs> not had any yet um I still don't understand what chapter house is so is this this it's is a, a feminist book it's club a book club okay yeah awesome so um I, I take it that we will probably get into you know the details of that but um like how how why when it is actually uh the second friday second friday of the month at 7 p.m at the let's say and i'll bring this up again too at the end um but it's the townshend tea company on alberta there are two of them it is the one on Alberta and 23rd at 7 p.m. Uh, at the Townshend's Tea Company. Okay. So don't get lost because I almost did. Oh, no. Yeah. And they meet in the basement. That's another tip that I didn't know. I was sitting upstairs like a loser. Oh, <laughs> hanging and you're out supposed with the to be cat. in the basement yeah. with your books. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. So well, let's let's hear more about this, uh, this Chapter House Cool Book Club right now. Um, my name is Paige Mackler. Um, I founded Chapter House PDX, which is an intersectional science fiction book club, um, and that came about from going to cons and kind of realizing that there's tends to be really particular kinds of geeks at cons, which I have some things in common with, but I'm a little bit more of a literary geek, um, and so I wanted to have somebody who was willing to like really shred stuff via feminist theory. And then how long has the book club been around? Actually, I think it's just about a year now. And it mostly started with uh, me inviting some of my friends and just like I put it um, public on Facebook actually. And then I pretty quickly decided that it was going to be um, basically excluding cis men because <laughs> there was like a lot of people who were like, I'm a cis guy, but basically have very little to contribute. Can I come? And it started to get to a point where I was like, hmm. You know, even when people have really, really great intentions, it's so easy for cis men to just take up a lot of space. And that takes a lot of work to like moderate, especially to maintain like positive feelings with everybody. So it's like, might be better to just have a space that was for like non-binary people and fans and like um, basically everybody who's not a cis dude. Yeah. (laughs) No, I understand too. Anybody, you know, with good intentions will always kind of have those lapses in judgment and like it's easier to be able to relax around women and not have to be a teacher all the time. 
Is that the direction you're kind of going? Very much so, especially because I, I didn't want to have like the feminism 101 things yeah. where like, but she has sex, so she's liberated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like no, we're not like because I have a couple of really great friends and we were always having these really fun like super like drilled down like feminism like graduate course level like maybe slight exaggeration, but still, um, these analyses, and I was like, that's really fun, I wanna have like a more structured thing so we can have these more often. Describe to me what a typical meetup is like. Um, generally, we meet at Townsend's, uh, the tea house in Alberta district. We have a table in the basement that they're very kindly uh, reserved for us here. And uh, so we get tea first, and then we head down to the basement. There's usually like, uh, between eight and 12, it varies a little bit. 12 is pushing it, because it's actually really hard to fit that many people around a table. <laughs> um, and we start out by uh, just introducing ourselves, making sure that everybody knows pronouns and stuff. And then we give each person a chance to talk about their general impressions of the book. And we just do you know, a round table that way, and people can respond to uh, the other people's impressions as well. And if people have, have any particular points they want to bring up, a lot of our members actually have academic backgrounds in various things that are relevant. Someone who's philosophy background and linguistics and lots of people have done a lot of like literary analysis in general, so they have really great stuff to talk about usually. And because there's so many people there and they have so many good points and then people respond to that, that tends to take up a fair amount of the time that we, because we usually only meet for about two hours. After that, usually I'll have looked into the critical reception of whatever it was that we read, and if there were any particular themes or salient criticisms or even like salient really good points or sometimes even just points of trivia that are of interest. The most recent book that we read, My Soul to Keep by Tana Reeve Ju, she is notable just because she's quite famous on the internet right now for her black cinema horror analysis classes where she actually had um, the director of Get Out appear. And also her course is just like, the most massively popular course in the history of her university. I think something like a quarter of the student body tried to enroll. So you know it's good. Yeah. And we try to actually like not just talk about like our impressions of the books, but also do a bit of critical analysis as well. And then when we're finished with that month's selection, discussing it, we have the, a democratic book selection process for the following month. We don't have like an established list of what we're going to read, like laid out or anything. So each book club member nominates books. They can bring physical copies or they can just like talk about it. People pull up descriptions on their phones and each person gets to nominate, you know, as many as they would like and they discuss it and they try and sell other people on it. And then we have votes. So in the first round of voting, people can vote on as many titles as they'd like because we do run off elections. So basically you could vote for like all of the books if you really wanted to. And then the books that got the most votes or if there's just one clear winner, obviously we're done, but then we'll have runoff elections to decide. And we do look at accessibility of the titles as well. Don't want anybody to have to buy a book if that would be like an obstacle to attending book club um, just because it's not really fair and it's a bit classist. So we do like look at what's at the library. Is it out in paperback? Has it been around long enough that there are lots of used copies for cheap available? And um, obviously you also have to weigh that against because we are trying to read a lot of like black authors and other marginalized uh, voices and women of color in general. Sometimes they haven't had the widest distribution. Um, and so sometimes those are a little bit harder to find. And so it has to be like a weighing of like, is this going to be a hardship for people to access versus the literary value of what we're trying to look at. And then once we've selected our one for the next month, it goes, I, after the meeting, put it up on the Facebook group, which is the primary means of communication outside of the actual meetups. And then that's about it. Explain how you went about uh, starting the book club and what steps you had to take in order to get it together. So I'd been thinking about it for a while. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm 
longtime geek, and I've been going to conventions for the last few years. I didn't discover them until I was an adult. I just thought I was like the only weird geeky kid that I knew. Yeah. But the thing about conventions, at least most of like the major ones, is they're pretty commercial and. Even Rose City, which is much more focused on comic books than many of the others, still has a lot of TV stuff. And, like, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of lots of TV franchises, but it seems like it's much more of a niche kind of geek who is into literary science fiction. And a lot of the things that I love about genre, genre fiction in general in any format is the way it explores... Um, alternatives and you can also do like these really interesting like in-depth thought experiments but you can present it in this really entertaining accessible way um, and sometimes even beautiful so I wanted basically other people to talk about that with and I didn't really have that as like an intellectual outlet so um, a couple of my friends uh, are pretty intellectual bent as well and not necessarily as interested in sci-fi as I am but like not not opposed to the genre as a whole and uh, we'd had some fun conversations, and so I thought it would be cool to start a book club and then see how many of my friends I could get to come. Because, you know, I have like, that big con spread. And Portland, in general, is just a pretty literary city, so I thought my greater circle, friends of friends included, and, like, putting up on con boards on social media and stuff might actually net me a few people. And I actually have a lot more followers on the Facebook page for the book club than people who actually show up, which I think is pretty typical. So the first step really was actually just creating the Facebook page. I delayed for a while because I was trying to figure out a good name. For a while, it had, like, a placeholder name because I couldn't think of anything that I felt was good enough. I wanted to have a Bene Gesserit reference because I'm a huge fan of Bene Gesserit in particular. Not really Doom because, like, Dune is great. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm a fan, but it has a lot Walking of, like... a fine line right now. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, like, it has a lot of really cool elements, and it did it better than a lot of other pieces, a lot of other examples in the genre, but it's still essentially a white messiah story. Yeah. And that gets a little tired, like, even if it has, like, really good, like, political machinations and everything, but the thing that always kept my interest about Dune was the Bene Gesserit. And they're kind of, like, unique in sci-fi. Like, there are some other, like, women orders, but they don't quite have the Bene Gesserit, like, the completely different time scale that the Bene Gesserit, like, they're not even operating on, like, a human time scale anymore, which is fascinating, but... So I wanted to have a reference, but I couldn't think of a good one, and just calling it, like, Bene Gesserit seems stupid. So for a while, <laughs> it was just the sisterhood, which is still kind of lame. So uh, eventually, I thought, which should have seemed obvious, because it's just a riff on a title of one of the series, but um, the fifth book in the Dune series, the original by Herbert, um, not the ones by his son, is called uh, Chapter House Dune, and it's actually, it completely revolves around Bene Gesserit characters, and it's actually one of the, like, as far as general fandom is concerned, most people aren't that interested in that particular novel, um, which I know because Herbert's son told me at a con. Because <laughs> um, it's, it's a little bit dense, and it's very much just focused on machinations within the Bene Gesserit. Um, and so, Chapter House PDX. Um, I'm not sure how many people actually get the reference, but I, I didn't think it was very subtle. But <laughs> I didn't get it, but I'm not a huge Dune fan. Sorry, guys, but <laughs> I crossed that line. Um, let's see. And then how do you think uh, this differs from just a run-of-the-mill book club? So the main difference is the focus on intersectional feminism um, in our analyses. A lot of, like, okay, 
any fan of sci-fi knows we've got a lot of problematic genre and there's so much problem and like honestly i even really like lots of things that are like deeply problematic and that's been like my shtick at cons i actually do panels and programming at rose city and emerald city and it's basically like lure you in with the fandom now here's critical analysis yeah <laughs> i know that there was people who are willing to have these conversations but it's not always the biggest it's, it's not widely available generally in like mostly con type adjacent spaces and also um as the book club has been going, I want I originally wanted to read um, women authors specifically, um, who are you know generally a minority in the genre. But as it's gone on, it's specifically evolved to focus on not just women generally, because there are actually quite a lot of white um, sci-fi women authors, but also um, women of color, because they are totally out there and they've been out there forever. But people just don't find them very often because they're not as promoted. Some of the, these authors that I found have been really great, but I've had to dig to find them. And also for people who are interested, there's a really fantastic collection of a survey of the genre of sci-fi authors going back, way back, who are black, called um, Dark Matters. And it, I mean, it goes back to like the 20s. People have been publishing stuff. It just didn't make it into like, you know, Asimov. You know, most of the people controlling what went into those magazines were like white dudes. So yeah, that's definitely a focus that's evolving in the club is making sure that we're actually like reading lots of different people, not just like, oh, she's white. Well, she's a woman, but she's white. We actually had one particularly disastrous book where we're like, oh, this seems great. The main protagonist is like biracial, black and Native American. And, but it was written by a white woman, but she like talked about all this research she did and like she tried so hard, but God, did she fail. <laughs> Yeah, she needed some test readers real bad. Do you want to do like a mini little blurb about the next meetup? My name is Paige Mackmore. I started Chapter House PDX, a local intersectional feminist science fiction book club. Our next meeting is Friday, March 8th. Our meetings are always the second Friday of the month at the Townsend's Alberta District. And for the month of February leading into March, we're going to be reading um, some short stories by black science fiction authors specifically women, and uh, we're going to read Nisi Shaw's Deep End, Nello Hopkinson's Shift, N.K. Jemison's Non-Zero Probabilities, and Andrea Hairston's Saltwater Road. You can find us on Facebook at Chapter House PDX. We're a public group. We just ask you to answer a few basic questions about basically saying that you're not a turf. <laughs> the space is specifically to amplify the voices of women, femmes, non-binary people. And if you are non-binary or trans, you are specifically welcome. Every stripe, non-binary and trans people. <laughs> and then you're, you're free to join. That was Paige Mackler with uh, the Chapter House PDX. Thank you so much, Paige, for doing that interview. I was uh, just saying with Becky that it was so easy doing the interview because as you could tell you just were throwing information at me left and right <laughs> <laughs> i barely did any work yeah but it was interesting to hear um what your approach was how people are able to decide on books how you know like it, it being a really like specifically like inclusive space i thought that was really really cool to hear about yeah it reminded me of that um <laughs> in a good way but remember that uh rick and morty episode where they go to the planet full of women and like all the women are like uh, i'm here if you need to talk i'm here if you need to talk and i was <laughs> no i have to admit this to all of you geeks out there i am way behind i have not watched any of what? this i know i'm sorry i'm just like very I'm apparently wasting my time not watching rick and morty <laughs> it's okay it's okay just because you're a geek doesn't mean you have to have 
all of geek fandom dumped in your head. Yeah, like, but I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little behind, but it's okay. Yeah, it's fine. No worries. I'll update you. Don't well, worry. you know, something that I have been busy on has been this um, KBOO Kickstarter you probably heard over and over and over. And That was such a clean slide, by the yeah, way. Yeah, why? Good thank job. you. <laughs> and you know why we're saying it over and over? Because it's an all or nothing deal. What we're looking to do is raise $20,000. We've had almost a month at this point. We have just about a week left to go and we are looking to raise another 9,000. So with your help, we can reach our goals. We can, you know, see through this amazing community experiment of organizing, of radio making and broadcasting with your help. So in order to help, go to kboo.fm. On the front page, there's a banner. There, You'll probably get something that like pops up in front of you, and it says, Build a City of Media Makers. So that is where you would click. You don't need to get out your trowels or anything. We make this easy. We make it fun. You we make have it a great super video. Easy. I know. <laughs> and we're asking for you to join in our community to support the building of a city of media makers and we've um you know explained it a little bit i think throughout the days that we've been talking about it, it it's not simply you know the physical creation of a city it's us building training programs it's us doing what we do and looking to expand that base so that we can have more people um, in the know when it comes to non-commercial media who are able to critically take a look at what gets sort of fed to them through Facebook algorithms. These are the things that we're, we're in kind of constant battle in a way, and we are looking for you to join us in this, this worthy fight. So go to kboo.fm and forward slash Kickstarter if you want to just bypass all of the, the cool graphics, but encourage you to touch your you know cool graphic part of your brain and say like cool there there it is they're kickstarting it so on top of that on top of that there are some cool um thank you gifts for your support oh man that leather jacket i saw i know (laughs) what's up with that how do you get that who designed it oh so um one of our a very amazing uh programmers on the movement matt fu is also an incredible artist i mean he's got many talents across the board but but he's offered to paint a beautiful uh kebu design on your choice of jacket leather or not leather depending on your preferences just one just one well it's also like a priceless work of unique art that you can wear your kebu pride but also support a radio station that really matters um that would be a thousand dollar pledge for this priceless piece of art i mean you see uh, like crust punk jackets online going for just as much and this is a nice no. brand new one with like a custom image too so uh-huh and if you want to see kind of what it would look like you can go to our kickstarter and kind of scroll down the page it is i think so beautiful and i would like to get one as well and if you want to fund me getting one <laughs> <laughs> you can kickstart me wearing that jacket right yeah totally <laughs> building a city of 
Becky wearing a cool leather jacket. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> that that website again is kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter. Or you can look us up on the platform. I would encourage you to spend a moment not simply looking at the cool thank you gifts, but to also watch the video. It shows, I think, a beautiful cross section of, you know, the people that work at the station you know, what they believe, what we are trying to do. It, I mean, it's great. And it was beautifully made by Derek Crooks, our AM News Director. So again, go to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter. Make a contribution and back us before time is up. Which How much time soon. is left? We have just about a week. So oh, next Friday at Help midnight. <laughs> yes, it's all or nothing. If we don't make it, then we, we lose everything including you know my heart because it will shatter in a million pieces Aww. although that's not part of the pitch you know i don't i don't want you we to went from think you wearing like, a cool jacket to having your heart broken i know see <laughs> it's 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 a really wide range of feels that we have in this room right now <laughs> but but i do encourage you to think um you know about kabu's place in your day kabu's place in your life and become a member of our community through the Kickstarter platform. So to do that, it's really easy. Go to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter and make a contribution while we talk about our very next segment because we have a treat for you. If you are at all, um, we, we were talking about the like early uh, earliest women geeks and I would consider this next speaker to be preeminent about amongst them you know ada lovely style of course i was looking at star trek on my phone sorry <laughs> but uh trina robbins she's a female graphic artist mm -hmm. well i think i think she's more than that she's the founder of oh. the women's comics collective in san francisco in 1970 1970. She published It Ain't Me Babe in 1970 as a response to the rampant misogyny and sexism that was going on in the thriving underground comic scene of the time. That's gotta be tough. I know, but she, she along with m a few other folks, Becky Wilson, Shelby Sampson, Barb Brown, Dot Butcher, Melinda Gebby, Melinda Gebby, by the way, like, steal my heart away. I love you. Mm -hmm. And um, there are, of, of course, great allies who are not women in part of that group. But but this was such a, a formative and, you know, creative way to um, combat the oppressions that people were experiencing at the time. But also to, I think, really, um, I, you know, forward a, a, a new way of making comics, a new narrative uh, with different storylines because comics for so long up until this sort of like great refusal of the late 60s was mostly about like commercially viable interests women as like you know victims male protagonists damsel in like distress that. exactly and so the women's comics collective they they brought to the fore um, issues of sexuality, of abortion, um, women's experiences, and I, you know, that that has opened up a whole new narrative format for comic books. I think, and we had the utmost pleasure and honor um, with Kyle Carizzi, um talking with Trina Robbins. 
uh, in person. So we have a recording of that. We saved it for you. If you love what you hear, if you are also an appreciator of the Women's Comics Collective, please go to our Kickstarter, kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter. Trina Robbins is one of the original underground cartoonists. The underground comics movement lasted during the late 60s and early 70s, depicting counterculture in underground newspapers and self-published comics. In 2017, Fanographics released her autobiography, Last Girl Standing. The book depicts her childhood in World War II-era New York, through her shenanigans in 60s counterculture, and onward into her storied comics career. Last Girl Standing opens with your first uh, publication in East Village Other. Yes. Yeah, so I'm wondering uh, why you made that as the intro to the book. It was something important. It started my so-called career, didn't it? Mm-hmm. What I liked about it was it was, it seemed like a lot of, that moment in your life seemed like a blend of a lot of things in your life, you know, like seeing the uh, person at Evo as a rabbi and being <laughs> through Bohemia. And that's that's re- where the, the rabbi thing is a reference to your upbringing. And then it's your first comic publication. Yeah. And also being in East Village at its peak. So I think that was a great introduction. And taking bad acid trips. We mustn't forget that. Uh, yes, of course, of course. So I guess when you were in Evo, what kind of, like, what did it feel like to be in those offices? Like, what kind of conversations would happen there? They were really nice people. I mean, they were all my friends. I felt really good at Evo. Um, conversations, I don't know, just whatever conversation. Uh, you know, nothing nothing earth-shaking. Mm-hmm. What would you say the uh, priorities were for those uh, for those underground newspapers in East Village at the getting time? Getting out the news and getting it out so that it looked good. You know, I mean, it was very creatively put together. Mm-hmm. And, of course, getting out the news meant our news, the counterculture news. So much is counterculture. Of course, a lot of it was anti-naturally. A lot of it was also anti-war, mm-hmm. you know, anti, um, um, anti-the war in Vietnam, anti-poor anti Lyndon Johnson, who, you know, when I look back, I realize was saddled with the war, you know, for, he inherited it from Kennedy. But we sure hated poor Lyndon Johnson. Um, you know, and... and and demonstrations, but also, you know, stuff about about pot, about acid, about abortion, which was still illegal in those days, even to the point where, you know, for at least a year, I was actually writing a, a, a counterculture fashion column in which I talked about, you know, not not what's in vogue or, 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 or what's in the big department stores, but, you know, small boutiques and what they made and people who specialized in face painting, uh, someone else who, who made her own lotions and, and perfumes and sold them on the street, stuff like that. I guess how did your comics and writing contributions to Evo uh, help you develop as a cartoonist and writer? Well, the more you draw, the better you get, of course, in every field, not necessarily drawing. The more you sing, if you're a singer, the better you get. If you're a dancer, the more you dance, the better you get. So I guess early on, uh, you got heavy into science fiction writing, and I'm kind of wondering what it was like at those early science fiction conventions. Oh, they were so small. We're talking now about when I was a teenager, you know, 15, 16, 17. You know, you'd get maybe 100 people in some hotel or some meeting hall, 
and that would be it. I mean, there were so few people, so few active science fiction fans in those days. Science fiction was still such a new media. And what about the uh, early Ren Fairs as well? Because I, I guess you went to the second one? Yes, I missed the first one, but I got the second one. That's right, and the third. They were small, too, really. You know, I mean, now they're, you know, they're humongous. I haven't been to one recently, but a couple of years ago I went to a Dickens Fair, and they're just gigantic. But they were very small. You know, we we had a grove and a forest, and we put up our own stuff. I guess, what similarities do you see between the science fiction culture at the time and comics culture? Well, science fiction started fandom. Fandom as we know it originated with science fiction. And even terms like, you know, fandom, that's a science fiction term, um, or a science fiction fandom term. So they really did start it, you know, and, and even costume contests. So they started that. Speaking of science fiction terms, you, you use the term Karis uh, a lot, which is the Kurt Vonnegut term. Karis is pe- how I pronounced it. You call it Karis, huh? Uh, well, I've never read too much Kurt Vonnegut, but oh my God, he's wonderful. That's what I've been told. I'll get I'll get around to it one of these days, probably. He's one of the greatest writers, contemporary writers in the English language. By contemporary, meaning 20th century on, or or mid-20th century on. Do you have a book you can recommend for me? The very first one I read was Cat's Cradle. Okay. That's where the term caress comes from. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, it's a good one to start with. All right, I'll look into it. The term refers to uh, people who keep coming back into your life. So I'm wondering, uh, what's the importance of it in terms of the development of being an artist? I would say in terms of the development of being a person mm-hmm. rather than an artist is that, you know, it's kind of magical, really. It's a kind of a strange mag- magical magnetism that you keep winding up, you know, the little group of you, your caress, keep winding up together no matter where you go. Can you talk a little bit about when you would go into the EC and Marvel offices a little bit? Oh, gosh. I was 15 mm-hmm. when my friends Marty and David, who were around my age, give or take six months, um, and we just, you know, we were mad fans, and we were EC. Well, I wasn't much of an EC horror fan, mm-hmm. but I did love their science fiction books, their weird fantasy and weird science. And But we were definitely mad fans. We just went to the office. We didn't ask permission. We didn't phone ahead. We didn't write ahead. We just walked in, and they were so nice to us. And, and again, it was small. In those days, everything was small. Bill Gaines. Bill mm-hmm. Gaines took us around, and I remember Al Williamson coming in with some work, and, and I, think, I think Wally Wood came in with some work, too. It was just it was incredible. And they were so, like I say, you know, they, they didn't, it wasn't like, go away, you have to have an appointment, or what are you doing here, kids? He was lovely to us. That's truly amazing to me, because I feel like you wouldn't have that type of leeway now. Like, oh, it's hard to waltz couldn't. into places you like that. You couldn't. Or even visiting the Marvel office in, in 1966. Mm-hmm. I just walked in. I, you could never do that now. I, made an, I never made an appointment. I just walked in and said to the woman at the desk that I was here to write about, about Marvel Comics for the Eastville, not the Eastville, rather, I'm sorry, the L.A. Free Press, because I had just come from L.A., and L.A. Free Press was their underground newspaper. You know, being in the heart of the 60s through East Village and Los Angeles, uh, I'm kind of wondering what 
the beat writers represented at the time? Because you did mention your friendship with uh, Jack Michelin. Yes. So I'm wondering, you know, what did the beats represent? Like, were since they were so, they seemed very influential during that time. Well, they were the the generation one up from us, you know, mm-hmm. the older generation, and. We loved them. We had enormous respect for them. I was in awe of them. And really, before the term hippie even existed, I was a baby beatnik. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to be. I was just, I was still just in my late teens, but, you know, I wanted to be like them. The tr- to me, they truly are remarkable, and I have a very chronic fascination with them. Jack Micheline, of course, as you know, mm-hmm. was in my caress, and I was, here I was, from New York to San Francisco, and there he was living in San Francisco, and we would see each other. He would, do, he would do readings, and I would come. I owned some of his art. I'm very happy to say. But uh, I also love the Moon Dog story, just kind yeah. of the way he appeared. So I guess what? Yes, I thought it was an opium dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he did look so bizarre, and I've never seen him before. He, he's, he's. A person of note. I mean, you can Google him and find out a lot about him. Did you uh, encounter him other times besides that one yeah, experience? Yeah, he was, gosh, still in New York. He was. I was backstage at something. I wish I could remember what I was backstage at. It was probably a rock performance. It was probably friends of mine who were playing, and he was backstage, too. And at that point, I knew who he was. It was like, whoa, that's Moondog. And uh, can you talk a little bit about... I guess how broccoli was a staple of the community because it seemed like you making clothes for other people was a great way to bond with others. I think it might have been the other way around that that when I bonded with people, I made clothes for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I look back, I realize that all of my female friends had a, I made at least one outfit for them, usually one. You know, that was enough. Uh, broccoli. If, at that point, there were all these little boutiques in the Lower East Side, in the East Village, mm-hmm. and they were all run by women on the other side of 25. You know, we were still very young, but we were over 25 and, and, and grown-ups and could take care of ourselves and take care of our stores. Um, and it was, it was, you know, our prices were incredibly reasonable when I think of it now, uh, but they, they weren't super cheap because we did make them by hand. They were handmade clothes. And broccoli became a little social scene. It was really fun. I mean, all the, you know, because my prices were decent and because I was friendly, all the good-looking hippie women, young hippie women would come, and even if they didn't buy anything, they would try on my clothes and hang out. And because all the beautiful young hippie women came to my store, all the good-looking, long-haired, young hippie guys started hanging out in the store. So it was a social scene, and I loved it. It was, you know, I was never never stressed or rushed. I I made enough money. I didn't have to, you know, get rich. I made enough money to keep myself going, and it was fun. If I had a time machine, I would like to go to the Broccoli Boutique, personally. You'd love it. Oh, thank you. You know, being a bohemian during that time, I guess you knew a lot of people who have very mythified public identities. So I'm wondering, why do you think people tend to mythify the 60s and bohemia in general? Mm. Well, the 60s, was it was a revolution. I mean, you know, the 50s, that had been the beat generation. That was pretty revolutionary. And, but I don't think that they, it, they affected the entire culture the way the 60s did. And maybe what the beats did was, was affect us, us hippies. 
um, it was a revolution. I mean, in everything, certainly in clothes, and I really do still, I adore clothes. They're so much fun. And the way we dressed expressed the way we felt, you know, the kind of lives we led. It was a revolution in so many ways. I mean, gosh, guys with their long hair, you know, it was almost like the way we looked was a sign telling people who we were. Well, I guess you name, you list some of the ways uh, the 60s started the sour toward oh, yes, 69 and 70. Sad. The wolves moved in. I mean, these kids, so many of them were kids. It's amazing when I think back how many of them were like 17 years old. And they'd left home. They'd run away from home. And they were, you know, like a whole bunch of them living together in some apartment, you know, curled up like puppies to keep warm. Uh, and they were so innocent. They were so innocent. So in come the wolves, you know, with their hard drugs. And these kids were just poor things. They were like sheep. It was very sad. Uh, what do you think led the uh, so-called wolves to that scene? Oh, I mean, the kids, it was almost a sign. These kids were just practically wearing signs saying, I'm young and innocent, please exploit me. I mean, I remember this one, this 17-year-old girl who I had met early on when I opened her boutique, and she would come by just to visit, and she was really nice. And I liked her, and her mother, in fact, was a teacher, and, you know, very permissive. But um, then I didn't see her for a while, and when she came back, she had this horrible story to tell me about how she had gotten, she and her boyfriend had gotten into hard drugs, and she showed me her arm, and it was awful. It was all these, these, sores from shooting up. I felt so bad for her. I do want to talk about uh, R. Crumb for a hot second. Sure. So, uh, when you and the other underground cartoonists were in San Francisco, and you found out about his work, when he came to San Francisco and hit that scene, did it affect everyone else's sensibilities? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Not everyone, but an awful lot of people. You have to understand that his early work... That, that I was familiar with from Yarrowstalks, that's the first place he was published, was very sweet. It was, of course, super-duper, you know, nostalgic, so reminiscent of, like, the cartoons of the 30s, really. And it was sweet. It was charming and sweet. And somewhere along the way, it, it turned a corner and got really, really just mean and, and especially... M- n- misogynist towards women it got it got i can't even think of the word but it it got mean you know it turned dark and he started drawing i mean specifically women women being humiliated women being raped women being even killed and the whole thing shown as very funny he was really kind of the king of the counterculture he was the god to a lot of these guys so an awful lot of them it was like he was giving them the flag, the red flag, to say you... Maybe the red flag is the real, real word, not the right word. Flag of permission to say you can do this too. This is really cool. And because he was such a god to these people, when I criticized those kind of comics, um, I was just, you know, persona non grata. You can't criticize God. Mm-hmm. Did you think uh, his misogynistic sensibilities affected your relationship with him? Like, did it seem, did it make it more awkward at all? Well, you know, in the beginning, we were friends. We were very good friends. But somewhere along the way, I really, it took quite a few years for us to not be friends anymore. And, and it was really on his part, not mine. I mean, 
you know, I continued to criticize him, but I was always friendly towards him as a person. I mean, you can criticize people you know, you can criticize friends. But somewhere along the way, he started really not liking me at all. Now, what I find remarkable about your work is even though your peers had these misogynistic sensibilities, uh, you managed to have a very feminist and women's liberation drive to your work. So I'm wondering, and it seems like, it seemed like an uphill battle, so I'm kind of wondering if, we, if you can speak about that drive a little bit. Well, of course it was an uphill battle. You, you draw what you feel, don't you? You write what you feel. And that was what I felt. When I look back on some of the stuff, I'm actually quite embarrassed because I was so angry. I was very angry. And a lot of those comics really do reflect how I felt. And, of course, that's another reason the guys didn't want to publish me, because they just felt that I was going to, you know, if they asked me to contribute, I'd be doing yet another feminist rant. But I couldn't help it. Now, uh, when when did the public start identifying you and your and these other cartoonists as underground comics? When did that become oh, a term? Almost immediately. I mean, they appeared in underground newspapers, and that's how they got the name underground comics because they were the comics in the underground newspapers. But pretty soon, and Crumb was the pioneer for this publishing your your comics not in a newspaper but in a comic book, just like mainstream comics. And that was revolutionary. That was amazing. Somehow it had never occurred to me to do that. You know, Crumb was the first one to do it. And once they were in comic books and sold in head shops, people took notice of them. Everyone took notice of them. Where did the idea for women's comics come from? Well, in 1970, uh, with the, the kind of the, the moral support of the staff of It Ain't Me Babe, which was the first women's liberation newspaper in the country, and I was working with them. So with their moral support, I produced the first all-woman book, comic book, and that was called It Ain't Me Babe Comics. So that sold well enough that by 1972, Ron Turner, who was the publisher, Last Gasp Comics, he wanted to do another feminist book. So at this point, I mean, when I put together in 1970, when I put together It Ain't Me, Babe, I had to find women that I knew who, who drew and ask them to draw a comic, women who'd never drawn a comic before. But by two years later, 1972, there were enough women who wanted to do comics that we could get ten women together, and I was one of them, at the house of Patty Moodian, who really was the person who formed it all, who called us all together and edited the first issue and put together an all-woman comic book, an ongoing all-woman comic book that lasted 20 years until 1992. And can you tell me more about the process of reaching out for contributors? Um, we didn't have to reach far, really. The first issue came out, and in it, we called for submissions. We said, send us submissions, send us your work, and immediately people were sending us stuff. It was really very exciting, and we would meet once a month with all these manila envelopes full of, and we, of course we asked for, for photocopies, you know, not please don't send us originals, with all these, these comics that women had submitted to us, and we would just sit on the floor surrounded by these things and read them all, and, and it was really, it was really, the editor made the, the final choice, but it was really very much a group decision. I mean, I think I can really call it a collective, which is what we called ourselves. 
So women's comics lasted for 17 issues. And what evolution did you see throughout those years? Well, they got better. I mean, the the earliest women contributors who'd never done a comic before, you know, a lot of them really were quite crude, you know, and we published it because we wanted their voices to be heard and because it was an exciting thing, no matter how crude the comic. It was exciting that women were speaking up in comics because they never had before. But as the years went by, remember what I said about how how if you keep doing something, you get better? Mm -hmm. So they got better. There were a lot who just dropped out after one comic or two, but then we were getting women who were so good, they got better and better. Yeah, there definitely seems to be an artistic lineage between those older women's comics and the later ones, and it kind of leads to cartoonists like Julie Doucet and Christine Critter and Dory Seda coming up. Exactly. I mean, a lot of women who now are very well-known names in comics got their start in women's comics you kind of paved a way for more diversity in comics now. I mean, comics, there are more women drawing comics now than ever before. There are more women of color drawing comics now than ever before. There are more out lesbians and out transgender people drawing comics now than ever before. I guess this this might be the last question I have, but uh, why did you write Last Girl Standing? I wanted to tell my story. If the internet is 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 really a mixed blessing, it's I love the internet and I love the instant communication, but there's also a lot of bizarre mis misstatements about me, uh, untruths running around the internet because of that kind of communication. And I wanted to clear everything up. I wanted to, in in certain cases where things that have been said about me have been very negative, I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted people to know exactly how it happened. And um, I wanted to tell my story. All right. Well, Trina, thank you so much for chatting with me. Hey, I'm delighted. And thank you, Kyle, for getting that interview with her story and Trina Robbins. Uh, she did work such as Gothic Blimp Works. She did a comic called Women's Comics. That's W-I-M-M-E-N Comics with an X. Uh, she contributed to Wonder Woman back in the early 80s. She did a comic called Gay Comics, again with an X. Uh, she's done a lot of stuff. She did a comic on 9-11 mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, Trina Robbins is one of the figureheads of the Women's Comics Collective, yeah. Underground Women's Comics, um, and also the author of Last Girl Standing and It Ain't Me, Babe. Check mm. out her work. It is phenomenal. And that Kinda movement. Kind of psychedelic. Yeah, and that movement was I- an incredible um, innovation into the narrative form that we can enjoy today. But I wanted to also point out some other cool countercultural stuff that you may not know. Um, Trina was mentioning um, the 60s with the connection that underground comics had to the underground newspapers. In San Francisco, there were so many of them. In Portland, there were also a bunch of underground newspapers like the Willamette Bridge and the Scribe. And wouldn't you know it, KBU was part of that scene as well. So another reason why you might consider going to our Kickstarter and becoming a a, a backer today is that 
We have been part of this countercultural movement for a very long time, since 1968. And it's important to remember that we are also trying to get all of that information that we have on reel-to-reel archives that we have printed and scanned out to you, to the public, so that you can have a connection to the incredible countercultural and activist scenes that have existed in Portland for decades. So in order to do that, you probably want to know how. KBOO.FM and forward slash Kickstarter will take you right there, but you can get to our Kickstarter in innumerable ways. Check out what we are trying to do. We're looking to build a city of media makers, but in reality, we've been doing that for 50 years through the power of people who are passionate about breaking media norms and who are able and you know willing to put together an incredible body of work that can only come from a community effort such as KBU. So that's that's just a little little plug. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of making a fair fight as well, you know, because like I was saying while we were listening to that interview, we got a lot of big scary news out there from mm-hmm. a lot of bigger corporations kind of putting a, a negative spin on everything and I don't know, feel kind of... Yeah. Like it helps having this community. Yeah. It's monolithic, this like what you get from literally everywhere else. And so community radio kind of exists as a relief and a complement to what is out there typically. And KBU does an incredible job of bringing a diversity of voices to the air. So we can only do this work with your support and your support. It will be especially timely because we have only one more week left of our Kickstarter. And we are all in or nothing, friends. So go to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter and pledge your support. We have some cool thank yous as well. My I upped my contribution to the $75 level because I want that t-shirt that says Keep Portland Radical. I feel like I will live in this shirt and I will stop driving my car and just like walk around so that I can kind of have that in people's faces all the time. Are we changing it from Keep Portland Weird? Because I feel like Austin yeah. might appreciate that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, it, you know, we, we didn't talk to Austin, but we also want to celebrate the radical history of, of Portland and Cebu. I mean, it, it's hard to envision now, but like this whole like West Coast was such... A, a fervent and amazing place for you know like uh, alternative lifestyles of people like kind of finding their identities of of being able to create comic collectives that were solely focused on issues that women faced uh, that that's the scene that all of us have a connection to when we live here and what we're looking to do is bring that out to the fore so that you were aware of the kind of power that collective action and creativity and creative expression has. That's the power of KBU. We were, we are a continuous reminder of our collective power as humans and our ability to express ourselves in ways that make changes happen. And so with you, we can build a city of media makers. It's a kind of revolutionary idea. And I'm asking for you to go to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter. Check out the video. It gives you a, a really nice snapshot of what it is to be in this community. And once you become a creator, or I'm sorry, a builder of city of media makers, a backer, you join our community. You are a very tangible 
stalwart of the Kebu community. And so I ask for you to join me in supporting this Kebu that we love, this radio that we love so much by going to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter. So, you know, we have a little more business in a Radio Geekly besides this. We like to tell you about the cool geeky things you can do in town. Well, as far as joining the community and having a good time, uh, there's always that block party that's happening June 3rd. Oh, Location to be announced, but it should be wild. It's going to be... It's going to be outside. Yeah, it's going to be outdoors, uh, friendly for all ages, multicultural celebration of Mm K-Boo. It's going to be wild. Yeah, that's going to be in August, August 11th. August 11th. Yes. So we have that. We're celebrating you, community members out there. We're asking for all of you to come in and join us for this party. In the distant future. In the almost (laughs) this time. And also another uh, kid-friendly event uh, going into the events this month is the Kids Film Festival. And I thought this was really interesting because it's films made by kids uh-huh. for kids yeah. um, and you get free balloon animals too yeah it's a really cool collaboration um, for boys and girls clubs and filmmakers so that will be an incredible time for sure and the uh, first 50 people that show up get a festival grab bag oh great too and then um, it's going to be Saturday March 3rd at 12.30 at the Laurelhurst Theater that's that's this this Saturday yeah Correct. Oh, yeah, 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 it's tomorrow. I forget. Like, oh, it's <laughs> tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. And then we have, uh, again, if anybody was interested in the interview by Paige Mackler, the Chapter House PDX mm-hmm. is going to be uh, next Friday, this upcoming Friday, March 9th at 7 p.m. at the Townshend's Tea Company. Um, and that's going to be on Alberta and 23rd. And like I said, there's two Townshend's Tea Companies. All right. And uh, we also have, if uh, you're a woman geek looking for a friendly environment, the Lady Plain Walker Society, the Portland chapter, uh, they are for Magic the Gathering, all-women friendly Magic the Gathering competition. Yeah, you can find them on Facebook, Lady uh, Plains Walker Society, the Portland chapter, and that is Thursday, March 8th. So everything's coming up. Oh, my goodness. Pretty soon this coming week. Oh, my goodness. I know. I I love Magic the Gathering. I don't have very many. I don't have any cards or anything they said all skill levels all skill levels all skill oh levels. my god i'm gonna go i have i have a bit of a commitment coming up with um i i, I have a D game i've been playing with um my community of queer folks and it's been super fun so we're we're doing a, a big blowout gaming sesh this weekend oh yeah and then I, i'm i'm starting i'm learning pathfinder if you know anything about it no so <laughs> apparently um in D and D three point five, folks, I, there was something about it becoming maybe free use or open source or something. I, I think like Wizards of the Coast had relinquished the rights to it in some way. Um, and while Wizards of the Coast went on to develop different editions of D and D, this became kind of an open sourced, you know, gaming system. So it has the mechanics a little bit of three point five, but holy cats there's so many like source books it goes into like all of these amazing character classes and like you can really kind of dial in characters in a way that i don't think you can in many other systems so i'm loving it i'm just learning so anyway i mean that's that's the purpose of radio geekly is to get geekly for sure and i just had that moment 
yeah it's working (laughs) sorry (laughs) not sorry (laughs) so in any case we are almost out of here you should catch us online Mm. we Mm. are on the kebu website if you should want to give an ear to our previous episodes you can kboo.fm while you're there click on the kickstarter also we're on facebook Oh, I'm God. A Radio <laughs> Geekly. Just look us up. You'll find all of our 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 previous works. You can find out about new episodes. You can find out about, you know, literally everything because we tell you everything because we're open geeky books. So anyway, this is your co-host, Becky. And this is Godiva Lee. You've been listening to Radio Geekly. On KBOO Portland. Thank you. Mm. March 8th for a 24-hour celebration of women through music, cultural, and public affairs programming in honor of International Women's Day. From 5.30 a.m. on March 8th to 5.30 a.m. the next day, KBU will continue our annual tradition of celebrating the achievements of women, as well as pushing for parity, recognition, equity, and equality for women and women-identified folks in our community and in our world. The schedule for the March 8th, 24-hour celebration of International Women's Day is posted at kboo.fm slash IWD2018. It's now easier than ever for somebody to make and distribute music, but it's much harder to be noticed. It's difficult for me to find the independent artists that I'm interested in through all of the choices. And it's a big part of the responsibility of KWU and other independent cultural institutions to bring attention to new local artists and musicians and help break through that clutter. KBU understands the importance of expression and we need your help to make a city of media makers where we can all express ourselves artistically and freely. This is the power of KBU. Invest in future media makers and join us on Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash Kickstarter and thank you for your support of KBOO. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM, Hood River and the Gorge at 91.9 FM, Philomath and Corvallis at 104.3 FM, and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. I hate a song that makes you think that you're not any good. I hate a song that makes you think you're just born to lose, bound to lose, no good to nobody, no good for nothing, because you're either too old or too young or too fat or too thin or too ugly or too this or too that. Songs that run you down or songs that poke fun at you on account of your bad luck or your hard traveling. I am out to fight those kind of songs to my very last breath of air and my last drop of blood. I'm out to sing songs that'll prove to you that this is your world and that if it's hit you pretty hard and knocked you down for a dozen loops, no matter how hard it's run you down and rolled over you, no matter what color, what size you are, how you're built, I am out to sing the songs that'll make you take pride in yourself.